We, um, if you're new, like this is what we do, right? We go through the scriptures, uh, we let the scriptures inform us on what it means, and then we try to make some parallels to our lives as we see these promises fulfilled in Jesus. And so here we are in our second kind of mini-series on the book of Genesis. Before it was the beginnings, which is Genesis 1 through 11. Now we're in uh, focusing in on the life of Abram. We, he is not yet Abraham, he's still Abram. And as we've seen in the last few weeks through Genesis 12 through 15, we see God making promises to Abram and his family of land and blessing and protection and descendants like the sea, like the sand on the seashore or like the stars in the sky, both are beautiful pictures that it is a number that cannot be counted. And that's what's been promised to Abraham and his wife so far. And yet here we are in a land that is not theirs now 10 years after these promises with no children. Now, I don't know about you, but after Genesis 15, and we walked through this last week, and we had this crazy covenant ceremony, right, where God commands Abram to cut animals in half from this way to that way, not like here, but here, puts them on each side. You would think that in this deep sleep with darkness, dreadful darkness around him, where God is promising to do things for Abram that he could never do on his own, I would think after that memorable experience with the Lord that something's going to change in Abram's life. I don't know what you expect after Genesis 15, but when I read Genesis 15 and the Lord credits to Abram righteousness though he has not earned it. Righteousness by grace through faith is salvation given to Abram and also given to you and me. And so after I read Genesis 15, I go, man, I bet you Abram gets his life together. I bet after the gospel is presented to him, I bet after he gets into the baptismal waters, man, he is going to live a changed life immediately. Surely he'll have no trouble. And yet Genesis 16 starts off with, now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian slave, however, whose name was Hagar. The problem is presented to them, and I don't know what your walk has been like, I don't know what your week has been like, but I'll bet you you've faced some similar problems. That life is not turning out exactly as you had planned. More so, you put God's promises on things, and now there's a real bed of disappointment where you can hatch all kinds of crazy plans if you're ready to. And that is all of our lives, much less it is the life of Abram and Sarah, Sarai at this point. What we see something here is something like our own lives, isn't it? It's failure. It's fumbling forward in our faith as we continue to walk by faith. That's what we see in Abram. And as we continue to walk through Genesis, what you're going to find is that the people that you have labeled as heroes of the faith are no hero at all. There's one hero in the Bible, and his name is Jesus. Abram is not our hero. He is what is labeled as the father of many faiths, not just the Christian faith, but the Jewish faith, and also the Muslim faith, and it all comes right here in Genesis 
16. This, this brother that is formed by Hagar ends up being Ishmael. That is the father of your Muslims. And the sons of Isaac are the, the people, the Jewish people upon the earth, which, of course, we come out of those people because Jesus was Jewish, right? And yet we are the seed of Abram, not due to lineage, but because of faith in Jesus. Everyone's invited to this family. But what we find is that there is only one hero, and that hero is Jesus. And so when we start to see these types of problems, where, where our heroes of the faith all of a sudden don't actually act like we thought they would, but they start making up kinds, all kinds of crazy, this is not the first one. And it's not going to be the last one where you start to find some real craziness in the book of Genesis. It's one of the reasons why I wanted to go through the book of Genesis, especially with our students in the room. Your faith is not going to be clean. Your faith, our faith is going to be messy, and we're going to mess it up, and God is going to continue to guarantee his presence in your life if you actually are a believer by grace through faith. He's going to continue to be a God of redemption and of interruption, and for that we give him glory. So when you hear this good news, when you hear that Abram is credited righteousness, when you hear that God truly is satisfied in you because of the work of Jesus and not of your own work, there's a few ways that you can respond. The first one is by law. You go, oh, okay, well, now God expects things from me, so I'm going to do X, and he's going to produce Y, and that's going to equal the life that I want. Friends, that's a trap, and I'll guarantee you that you are walking in that trap at some point in this last week. If I do A, God will do B, that will yield C. That's law. That's not grace. That's one way that you'll react. The second way that you'll react is through license, that you, you hear this, this idea that God will forgive me no matter what. So, I mean, if it's no matter what, then it's no matter what. Am I right? So we go out, we do our thing on Saturday or Monday or Saturday or Friday. Apparently, there's no weekend anymore, so therefore there's no real, way, no real time that you just go and just blow the lid off life. That's just any time. And so you go, and as we used to say in college, you got time for Satan on Saturday night. You better make time for Jesus on Sunday morning. No one laughed at that? There was like two people. That was good in college. That was 20 years ago. All right. So you go out and you live however you want because, after all, Jesus will forgive you. That's license. That is not the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus is a response not of law, not of license, but of love. And you see what all God has done for you. And you live your life sacrificially unto him because you're just grateful. Eternally grateful that God would look on you a sinner and call you righteous. Something that you and I both don't deserve. See, what we're going to see in Abram's life is that we begin to see that walking faithfully with our God isn't easy, nor is it predictable, especially when we feel like God has promised something that he then also is preventing. I want you to see that and hear that. He's promised numerous children to Abram and Sarah, and he has also now prevented it. He hasn't opened up her womb. Abram is 75 at this point. Sarai is 65 at this point. She's probably gone through at least early stages of menopause, right? Those days are, are, law, are going by them, and she's starting to get desperate. 
So as we look at the passage, here's what I hoped us for us to see. I just want to draw out like three principles that I saw that are big picture that I think apply to us in regards to what are some threats that are before us for walking a deeper faith. As you walk based on the righteousness of God that he's given you, that day of salvation, that season of salvation, whenever that was, as you continue to walk trusting in Jesus along the way, there are a lot of threats that you're going to be faced with. Three of them are presented in the text today. Number one, follow me if you will. This is going to be a a real fun, fun day. Number one, baptizing your desires in God's name. You are all looking at me like I don't know what that means. When you immerse your preferences in God's name, there is a huge danger on your life. Here is what I'll explain it. I'll explain it through the text, and then I'll try to explain what we're looking at, and then maybe just ask some questions here as we get going, right? The text says that 10 years have passed, and the life in Canaan has not produced the fruit which Sarah and Abram had hoped. There's still no child, and so Sarah conceives a plan that is born in a bed of disappointment. She goes to Abram, and she says, hey, we're not having any kids here. I'm not getting any younger. You're not getting any younger. But we have this slave, this female servant Her name is Hagar. Perhaps you can sleep with her. And if you're a married man and this is a a plan of your wife, Abram, his life is going to call out to you and say, danger. This is not a good idea. Though you could have a license, it's not a good idea. Abram, it says, listens to the voice of Sarah in verse 2. The Hebrew construction there is used twice in the Bible. Hear And when God judges Adam for listening to the voice of his wife. This is not something that is haphazard and it is absolutely serious and deadly and consequences come at the point of this decision. Abram, the emphasis is not just listening to his wife. That's not the point. If your wife tells you to take out the trash, go do it. The point here is that Abram has quit listening to God and started listening to people. Mainly his wife. Wife, Sarah's disappointment with how God's plan is playing out pushes her not into a deeper trust of her God, but instead uh, uh, pushes her into interpreting and reinterpreting her own life. And and that's at the forefront now of how she's going to make decisions. And I wept when I read this this last week. Because I don't know about you, but I just find myself in life where there are just some things that are running up against you, and it just seems like things are not just, just, there's just a barrier. There's something here that I just, I'm pleading with God for, and I'm asking him to do the things. And so I'll even get to the point where I'm like, I'm praying, I'm doing quiet time, I'm giving, and, and I'm, I'm, all of a sudden I'm, I'm in a formula. I'm in the law. And I'm pleading with him to do some things and just aren't happening, at least not in the timing or the way that I would hope. And I don't know about you, but man, I start to in, reinterpret that and why I wept, because I think Sarah reinterprets her circumstances when she says, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. While that's true, you know there's something deeper in there that says this is God's fault. My circumstances are disappointment, are not on us, they're on you. We've done everything right, and if you would just do something right, we'd make this thing happen. I don't know if you've ever had that thought. 
I certainly have multiple times in life. But God is not passive. He is, and he is not the cause of our suffering, and he is certainly no excuse for our compromise. Sarah's life was not what she expected, so she, she baptized, she sprinkled some holy water over her desires in God's name. She over-relied on the culture around her. In the days of Abram, the law was not here yet, right? Moses had not come and written the law, so there was no, like, you know, husband of one wife yet. But there were a lot of laws in the ancient Near Eastern world, and all of the other religions basically give allowance for a husband to do exactly what they did. And that is take a female servant as a surrogate mom if the, if the wife is barren. And therefore the heir to the throne of whatever household could come through that surrogate. It's permissible in the culture. But according to what God wanted to be faithful to Sarai. That is not what God wanted. And we see that hatched out even though God blesses Ishmael. And I'll say this, the church is not immune, right, to, to kind of hatching up our own plans and saying, oh, yeah, God called me to do this. Oh, yeah, it's just God's desire for our lives. I don't know, but generally speaking, the church certainly flows right in line with what culture thinks most days. And it's like, by God's grace, churches like this with the elders' leadership and you all's execution of that leadership and ministry, that we kind of come into this place on a regular basis and take a break from all that and go, no, no, what does God want for us? I'm grateful that this is a good place for that, that, that the, the constant noise of the prosperity gospel have no place in this room and in our hearts, I pray. The constant noise, and this is what's going on right now, in our, not just in our culture, in high schools, right here. There was, a, there was a, a walkout on Friday, was it Friday or Thursday, about the abortion rights, right, at Travis High School. Hundreds of students outside saying, you know, yeah, we, we got to get behind the fact that we're going to lose um, opportunity to get an abortion if you're a female. Students, especially the female students, don't get caught up in this tide, in this river of my body, my choice. You know whose choice it is? It's the Lord's choice. You do what the Lord wants you to do with your body. You are not your own. And so if, here's what I know when we talk about abortion. Statistically speaking, there's some, there's some women in here that were pressured to get an abortion, that made the choice to get an abortion. So let me just say this, like abortion is wrong, it's murder. I won't, won't come off of that. We were formed in our mother's wombs. And at the same time, God's grace will never be outdone. You are forgiven if you are in this, in this room trusting in Jesus for your salvation. You are forgiven. Jesus' blood is greater than any blood that could be ever spilt by any one person. It runs way deeper than whatever we could do. So I want you to hear both sides of this, that yes, we stand against it, but man, we stand with you. It's not an either or. It's a both and. If it's not abortion in this culture, it's gender fluidity and gender identity. Don't give in to the culture's narrative that we have an identity and it's based on a sexual appetite. We are way more than a sexual appetite. I'm not a, homo, I'm not a homosexual male. I'm not a heterosexual male. I'm a male I'm a Christian, and then everything else falls in line behind that, including heterosexual or homosexual. 
I'm a Christian first. I follow Jesus first. And whatever comes as a result of me following Jesus and whatever denials that I need to make and whatever allegiances that get tested, we follow Jesus with all of our lives. This is heavy, but this is what is in the text. It's this cultural pressure to do some things to make your life what you think you want it to be. You see how you baptize your desires in the name of God? And if it's not something political or something hot button, it's consumerism. And so I see this a lot. I hear this a lot when we sit down with people that are coming in from other churches or leaving our church to go to another church. And usually this is what's said. God's calling me to do this. Are you sure? I almost named the first point of this sermon. Are you sure? Are you sure? Are you 100% correct that God himself said this? Or could you be wrong? Because Deuteronomy 18 says if you're a prophet and you get it wrong, you deserve death. So let's just be a little more careful about how we use God told me and God's calling me. Let's not be flippant with the phrase. I had a professor in seminary that said the most authoritative person on earth is the one that comes to you and said, God told me. No one can fight with that. No one, no one can argue with the God told me because now you pulled the God, God card and we all have to go, well, I guess I'm just not a believer. Let's be careful about when God says to divorce her. You sure? You're absolutely positive about that? Let's just be a little bit more careful when we say, well, God's called me to this place or that place or this job or that job or to that land or this neighborhood or over here or over there. Are we sure? God's called me to leave this neighborhood group or this church. Is he? Let's not baptize our desires in God's name, but persistently pursue God in prayer until he grants the good things that he has promised to his people, which I'll guarantee you is going to take longer than you had hoped. Persistently praying like the widow in Luke 18, pleading with the judge for justice. And God says, man, in God's time, he will give good justice to his people. That's number one. Number two. Not just baptizing your desires in God's name here as Abram and Sarah do. They want this child and so they go, well, God must be okay with all of this. And is no, actually he's not. And then what comes next is a bunch of conflict, a bunch of consequence, and they overemphasize peace. That's, I think, our next threat to a really deep, faithful walk with Jesus. An overemphasization of peace. I can't use that word again because it's not a word. Overemphasizing peace. Look at verse 4. And he went into Hagar. That's Abram. That's biblical language for what you do. And she conceived. And, uh, sorry, there were students in the room. I just all of a sudden remembered. And, um, and when she saw that she had conceived... She, Hagar, looked at contempt on her mistress, that is Sarai, and Sarai said to Abram, now I want you to put yourself in this position, not that you have ever felt this. Sarai said to Abram, after doing what his wife suggested, may the wrong done to me be on you. Excuse me, I just said, okay, I did what you said to do. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt, and may the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. And Sarai dealt harshly with her, and Hagar fled from Sarai. 
Upon Sarai's request, Abram knows Hagar. Hagar becomes pregnant. Hagar despises Sarah, and she was once a lowly slave, and she was told what to do and when to do it and how to do it, and now she has, been, she has a baby in her, and she now has power and position and a voice, and how does she use that newfound power and position and a voice? She curses her master. That's what the Bible says, that this idea of contempt is actually the same word that uh, God said to Abram, where he says, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. And Sarai is now cursed by Hagar. And Sarai goes to her husband, the head of household, and says, hey, this ain't working out how you and I thought it was going to work out. This is not good. She's pronouncing curses upon me. Abram, do something. And I'm going to bet you, I don't know this, but I'm going to bet you it was a Sunday afternoon and the Masters golf tournament was on because Abram said, no. It's your problem. You came up with this idea, and I would like to take a nap. Ultimately, he just abdicates his responsibility and says, I'm not into fixing your problems. You take care of it. There is a personal overemphasis on personal peace that keeps him from engaging in the appropriate way. Throughout the story, you see Abram not wanting drama. You see Sarai wanting someone else to clean up her own mess. And you see Hagar creating an emotional climate which she then can no longer bear. And if you just start thinking about what's driving all of this behind the scenes, they all want certainty which is found in a little relational peace. Just want some peace here with my wife. I just want some peace here with this servant. I just want some peace here with my master. And I don't know how to get any of this. And it gets all wonky and everything just implodes. Abram did not lead his family the way that he should when Sarai suggested that he go into Hagar. He instead just said, okay, we'll just go with that. I can see you're in pain. We'll just go with that. When Sarai brought the issue of cursing to him, he told her to take care of it. He was watching something else and said, man, just deal with it. Do with it however you want. And so just a moment here. Men, you have been given, excuse me, husbands, not all men, husbands. Let me just be clear about that. Husbands, you have been given a unique position of leadership in your home. Do not withdraw from that position of leadership because you don't want to come off as abusive because you might, you know, overdo it. And, or don't, don't do this. Like, I just don't want the drama. Like, I can't tell you how many times I've gone on a men's retreat or lunch with men, and it's usually, man, I just don't want all that drama. And so I'm just going to go out to my shop. I'm just going to keep working. I'm going to say yes to that promotion that puts me out of state for a month at a time. I'm going to go down to wherever, and you all of a sudden have this overemphasis of just peace. Husbands, don't be abusive, but also don't be passive. Where was Adam when Eve ate the fruit of the tree, of the fruit of, uh, of knowledge, of good and evil? Right next to her. Passive, awaiting the consequence of her decision. Step into the chaos like Jesus has stepped into the chaos of your life. Do not withdraw. And also don't overexercise any authority. Step in with grace and mercy and into the position of leadership that's going to cost you. 
It's going to cost you a, a week of, of, of probably really good relationship with your wife. Is a week of, of, of fighting and quarreling over the right thing worth it? All of the husbands are going to going, I don't know, you tell me. <laughs> I haven't tried it yet. <laughs> yes! A week of good conflict over the holiness of your family is absolutely worth it for the fruit that it will yield over time. Don't withdraw. And I'll don't go in and go, well, the Lord told me to tell you. No, come on. <laughs> he didn't. And wives, there will always be people, and this is really probably for all women, there will always be people who look at you with contempt. Always. There's always going to be people that you will have opportunity to also look on with contempt. I don't know what it is, but there's always competition, male and female. Male, we just talk trash to each other. I'm, I'm definitely aware of that. Females just kind of talk trash to one another to their head, like about one another in their head or whomever else. I'm not trying to broad stroke, but this is, this is kind of where we're at. Look, the contempt that we have, there will always be opportunity to give it or receive it. But instead, God is asking us, male and female, to enter into those chaotic places with the kindness that comes with God's spirit. Y'all are still looking at me like I'm crazy, Okay. Here's God's answer, and we're not going to like it. So Hagar takes off, right? And what happens? God goes and interrupts her and finds her and says, go back. Submit to Sarai. Now, if you're reading this through a lens of maybe a Western world and you start to see this, you go, whoa, whoa, whoa. Okay, hold on a second. This slave girl who all of her rights were stripped from her in Egypt, she probably was picked up in that little trip to Egypt a while back, right? Now, years have gone by. She may have been a teenager or a young girl at the time. Now, she's at least of childbearing age. Abram, who's 75, now goes into a very young woman, impregnates her. Probably not something that she really thought about or wanted in her life, but this was what her station was in life. And she used that position, and she drew contempt upon her mistress, Sarai. She then flees because Sarai is harsh with her. Wouldn't you think God would say, hey, I'm gonna, I got your back. I'm going to provide for you in ways you never believe. You don't ever have to go to that place. He didn't say that. Let's read it. Verse 9, the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. Say what now? She, I don't know if you saw this. She's very harsh with me, Lord. Yeah, I saw you. Go back. There's something about submitting to difficulty that God is forming in us that we cannot get any other way. And yet God is uh, going to allow us, dare I say, sometimes command us to endure for a time because he has provision on the other side of our suffering. You see, instead of submitting to God's provision in God's time, Sarai pr prioritizes personal fulfillment in an heir, no matter if it honored God or not. Instead of submitting to God's position as a leader, Abram prioritizes personal peace and puts Sarai in a bad position. Instead of submitting to God's position as a servant in Abram's household, Hagar prioritizes revenge and then peace as she flees into the desert. So God's call for Hagar to return and submit is not, though, a call to submit to abuse. 
God is not calling her to submit to abuse. She, he is calling her to go back to an unpleasant place and change her attitude. You can't be in this place and survive, Hagar, with the contempt you have for Sarai. Though this was not my plan, I'm going to make good out of this plan. And if you keep reading the blessings that he gives over, over Hagar for Ishmael, he says, I'm going to bless you just like I'm going to bless Isaac one day. So you go and you submit, and they will accompany a promise that will go generations down the line. God made her a promise of powerful descendants, and though she was ready to get out of a place of conflict, God basically says to her, you're going to be in conflict your whole life. Your son is going to be a wild donkey of a man. I don't know about you, but Hagar could have said, whoa, I have this baby now. I didn't want this baby, and now you're going to tell me he's going to be a crazy person in conflict with everybody? She doesn't say it. You know why? Because she takes it as a blessing from God and does exactly what God tells her to do. She submits herself to Sarai until a later time we'll get to when she does get kicked out again. But for now, she goes back. She submits. And we don't know, but we think that she at least honored God for the next several years. So again, back to this overemphasis of peace, right? Living in peace is a good thing, but not if it causes you to disengage or mature. You see, if you leave situations prematurely, you will surely live the same lesson again. This doesn't happen as often as it used to, but there was a time in a season of our church where we get a lot of people come in, stay for about six months or a year, and then kind of have the conversation after they've already left and go, hey, we just weren't connecting there. And then I would have the, the privilege, and I do speak to a privilege here, and I don't normally talk about people coming in and out as much as I am today, but it, it fits here. I do have the privilege of then sitting down with those people and go, tell me about what you were thinking, because we want to learn about the connection part. And they would sell it, you know, say, you know, a few people in particular come to mind, like, oh, I didn't connect here, I didn't connect there, I didn't do this, there weren't people my age, there weren't, you know, this, that, and the other. I'm like, okay, we're in a Bible study, wasn't it this? Okay. Tell me about your last place before you came here. Did you connect there? No, come to, come to think of it, I didn't connect there either. Well, did they have Bible studies? Yeah. Did they have, um, like, Bible studies for people your age? Yeah. They have stuff for your kids? Yeah. So then it's not the environment. Because this doesn't have that, and you're not connecting. That did have that, you're not connecting. Have you considered that there's a lesson to be learned here about you and the need and the desire to connect and maybe some inability for lack of connection that might need to be worked on with the spirit, maybe a good counselor, a good pastor, haven't thought about that, but we're still going to go. All right? The Lord bless you and keep you. There is a time where we need to stop with all the consumption on the body of Christ. It's not giving me what I want. It's not doing this. It's not doing that. And go, wait a minute. This might be a me thing. Let's just sit in this and maybe get around some people that will love me and help me along the way. That's number two. Number three. The great third threat of our deeper walk with Jesus is a lack of self-awareness. A lack of self-awareness. And here's what I mean. Look at what God did when he interrupted Hagar in verse 8. Right? The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And then in verse 8, and he said to her, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? 
God does not ask us questions because he doesn't know the answer. He asks us questions because he wants us to find the answer that, to a question we didn't even know we should ask. Where have you come from and where are you going? What story are you a part of, Hagar? Is it a story that's just your story that you're going to write, that Sarah and Abram are writing for you? Or are you a part of a bigger story that God is writing and it's got a beautiful red thread of redemption all the way through it? Where are, you, where are you coming from and where are you headed? And what does Hagar do but respond with this beautiful thing in verse 13? So she called the name of the Lord. This is the only person that ever names God in all of Scripture, and it's Hagar, a female servant. She called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing, a.k.a. you have seen my plight. You see me. You're asking me where have I come from and where am I going to help me now realize there's not a place I could come from or a place I could go that would be outside of the sight of the omniscient, all-powerful, all-wise, and all-benevolent God. No matter what your circumstances were and no matter what they will be, God is all-seeing and he sees you. Now, when the Bible says he sees you, it doesn't mean that he's just standing off like the watcher in the Avengers series on Disney+. Plus. Anybody else seen that? No, just me? This creepy guy in the sky that cannot intervene. It's not God. He sees you. And he knows exactly what's going on in your heart. He knows exactly the things that have happened to you that no one else dare see and look upon. Nor should you let them. But he sees you. And then he promises things to you. Like your hope is not in smoother circumstances. Your hope, it, hope is not in a better master or a better mistress or a better employer or a better whatever. Your hope is only found in the presence and the power of Jesus himself. So no matter what circumstances you find yourself in, your hope is in the God who sees, has the power to intervene. He may not, but he has the power to intervene, and he certainly promises presence in the midst of your pain. And so this story is one that reminds us, where is our hope? Is it going to be in smooth circumstances? Is it going to be in getting what we want with the time that we want? Is it going to be in finding peace somewhere away from all the conflict? Or is it going to be truly not in the blessings of God, but in the God who will bless you? The presence of God. It's her only assurance, not that he will make these things right or smooth, but that he will be with you through the darkness, through the storm, through the valley of the shadow of death. Will we be aware of that in ourselves? Will we be aware of the story that we have and that we carry, the things that shape us and mold us and wonder, like, and I just have trouble with God's authority. And when I start to dig in with why I have trouble against God's authority, it usually means if I just dig in a little bit that it just flows down over to my childhood with my dad or my mom, who abused that authority. I mean, time and time again, that's our story. I don't like it when people tell me what to do. I mean, somebody told me not to mess with the curtain over here earlier, and I was like, I'm going to go mess with that curtain. because you said not to. And I didn't, because I caught myself, but I wanted to. Why? Because I got issues. You didn't need me to admit that for you to figure that out. You figured that out a long time ago. 
Because there's a story that I'm living in that may not always match up with the story of Jesus, that I am a blood-bought son or daughter of God. And he wants me to live according to that new identity, found in him of a God who sees me. So will you see your trial? Will you see your difficulty? Will you see your circumstances as one where you might be invited to trust and persevere deeply into a God who sees you? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, the invitation remains for us. Based on what Abram and Sarai made a mess of, you are cleaning up. Based on the life that we have made a mess of, you also clean up. So the question remains for us. Will we trust in a God who speaks to us in the midst of difficulty? who comes and finds us in the desert that we have made of our own attitude, who comes and finds us in the midst of our trials, will we put our trust in Jesus, who in the midst of his trials fought in the garden? Deep emotional distress, crying out to his father, and will we accept the answer of silence for a greater purpose? This is the life that Jesus lived, and so will we also live that life where our Father just does not answer in the timing that we would have. And will we follow a Savior who didn't condemn us, who didn't speak contempt over us, who didn't and doesn't abuse his power and say, I knew you were going to be that way. Now, will we follow a Savior who does not speak curses but became a curse for us? Who does not condemn others but took on the condemnation that we deserve? Who does not abuse his power but took the abuse of power? Who does not enslave his people to servitude but became a slave himself so that we could go free? We believe in that, God. pray we will. And Holy Spirit, I pray you'd help us. In Christ's name, amen.